Everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, we want to explore what some have called Paul's paradox. Hey everyone, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church. Uh, so glad that you're with us today. Um, a paradox, we open with that statement, Paul's paradox. That's actually the title of today's talk. But what is a paradox? Well, a paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And so a paradox is kind of a fun. So let me, let, let's kind of do a couple paradoxical exercises, if you will, to kind of get a sense of a paradox. Uh, one of the more famous paradoxical statements is this one right here. It'll pop up on the screen. This statement is a lie. This statement is a lie. Now, taken at face value, we must assume that it is a lie right? This statement is a lie. However, if the statement is true about it being a lie, the statement is also true. It's a paradoxical statement. Um, there's another fun paradox called the unexpected hanging paradox. Now, in this paradox, a man has been sentenced to death by hanging, and the judge tells him that he will be hung by noon on a weekday and that the day of his hanging will come as a surprise. All right, so now follow the logic here. The prisoner, upon hearing his punishment, reflected on it and concluded that he'll be able to escape his execution. So how, how does he do this? Well, because the execution will happen on a weekday, he argued that his ex execution can't be on a Friday because the judge told him that the day will be a surprise to him. Therefore, when Thursday passes and he's still alive, he will know that the execution is going to take place on the Friday. Thus, no longer a surprise. Thus, Friday is eliminated. After drawing the conclusion that the day of his execution can't occur on a Friday, he reasons further and states that his execution cannot be on a Thursday either. That's because when he's still alive, when Wednesday noon passes, then the hanging must be on a Thursday. Given that he already ruled out the possibility of a Friday execution, therefore, a Thursday execution will not be a surprise to him as well. And using the same line of reasoning, he further argued that the execution also couldn't occur on a Wednesday, a Tuesday, or a Monday. And after his arguments, he happily went back to his cell and he was confident that he was not going to be hung at all. When the week of the execution came, the executioner knocked on the prisoner's door on a Wednesday. <laughs> this came as a surprise to the prisoner, who was confident that the execution wouldn't happen at all. Thus, what the judge told him was true. This is the unexpected hanging paradox. And a paradox by its nature, it creates a kind of tension for us. 
uh, seemingly opposite truths or outcomes somehow existing in a kind of tense harmony, a harmony of tension, if you will. And today, um, I have the role of walking us through what many have called the Pauline or the Paul paradox. The Pauline paradox or the Paul paradox. Paul's explanation of the gospel creates what on the surface seems to be conflicting ideas. But when we dig a little deeper, we see that they coexist quite comfortably together. So if you're taking notes or if you're trying to follow along, why don't you write this down? Saved, not by works, for good works. Saved, not by works, for good works. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, as we're going to camp out today. So Lord, as we turn in Scripture, as we take a moment in our day to consider your truth, as we consider uh, how, what this means for us, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us in truth today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Pastor Lisa, she led us to this moment, and she called us to consider not just our salvation, but both our salvation and our righteousness. Uh, she led us to Isaiah, and we're going to kind of dig into that a little today. This idea of righteousness and salvation springing up together. And here, Paul, he kind of brings this thought, this idea to a summation. And many of you will know this verse, uh, these couple of verses. They are the kind of verses that you memorize, the kind of verses that if you went to Sunday school, you learn these verses. And they go like this, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace alone, this idea in the Christian faith, the biblical worldview around our soteriology, our, our, our theology of salvation, is grace alone. And this has been the doctrine of the church for over 2,000 years. This hasn't changed. The way of salvation has been and always will be by God's grace. And Paul had to fight for this understanding of the gospel uh, in that day, in the first century, as the church was in its genesis, as it was being birthed out of the ministry of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross and by his resurrection. And the disciples are sent out. Now they are bringing some language to the theology and the beliefs of the church. And Paul had to fight tooth and nail for this idea of salvation by grace alone. So now the follow-up question is, what is grace? And grace in its simplest definition is simply unmerited favor. Another way you could say that is grace is favor that you don't deserve. In Ephesians 2, Eight, the second part of verse 8 says, and this is not your own doing. This, this idea of salvation, coming to Jesus, coming to the Father, that relationship being repaired is not of your own doing. And the question here is, what, what's not of our own doing? And I think in some ways it's saying the, the, the faith to believe is not of your own doing. In other words, the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah the one who has come to save us by his grace is not of our own doing. The faith to believe it, 
the supernatural experience of being convinced that this is true, that Jesus is who he said he was, is also not of your own doing. In one fell swoop, God's grace leads us to repentance and salvation. And so it's grace alone that we are saved. Now you might ask, like, how does the sovereignty of God, God's plan for you, God pursuing you, God leading you in salvation by grace alone, even the faith to believe, convincing you that Jesus is the Messiah, grace alone. How does that pair up with this idea of God giving us free will? And here's the answer. I don't fully know. <laughs> I know it's, it's a horrible answer, but I don't fully know. I think this is one of these concepts, these moments, um, where there's a mystery in the gospel, those places that we can't fully understand intellectually because they're just simply beyond us to reconcile and to understand. It's another paradox that the biblical worldview brings to those who walk in it. But I believe that both these ideas can be true simultaneously. We can have free will to choose God. We have free will to choose Christ as the Messiah. But, but to get to that place of decision, to that plane of revelation, to say yes or no, that takes God's grace. That takes God's grace, God's revelation, the moving of the Holy Spirit, the gift of faith to even believe. Last week, Lisa brought a profound thought forward from William Barclay. And it was essentially this, and I'm paraphrasing. When we sin, we don't such, so much break the law as we break God's heart. I'm gonna say that again. This is a concept that's so important and so key. When we sin, we don't so much break the law as we break God's heart. Because the law existed to reveal the terms of relationship with the Holy God. It existed to reveal our incapacity to live to that standard. And so it revealed our need for a savior. It revealed our need for intervention that we couldn't produce in and of ourselves. But our shortcomings, and more than just missing the mark in terms of the law, our shortcomings, our sin, become the acts and attitudes that break God's heart. And they stand as barriers to relationship with our Creator. Ephesians 2 verse 9 says, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What's not a result of works? Your salvation. Your salvation is not a result of you doing enough, being good enough, having the right things in order, uh, being perceived in a, way, in a certain way. You don't have what it takes to be saved, is what Paul is trying to say. And William Barclay brings a very kind of upsetting illustration forward to help us really understand this concept. And and I apologize in advance if this hits close to home for anyone, but it kind of carries the right amount of, of pain to bring this idea to not just our intellectual process, but also to our emotional kind of soul process as well. He says this, God is love. Sin is therefore a crime, not against law, but against love. Now, it is possible to make atonement for a broken law, but it is impossible to make atonement for a broken heart. 
And sin is not so much breaking God's law as it is breaking God's heart. Let us take a crude and imperfect analogy. Suppose a motorist by careless driving kills a child. The driver is arrested, tried, found guilty, and sentenced to a term of imprisonment or to a fine. After the fine has been paid or the term of imprisonment served, as far as the law is concerned, the whole matter is over. But it is very different in relation to the mother whose child was killed. The driver can never put things right with her by serving a term of imprisonment and paying a fine. The only thing which can restore that relationship with her is an act of free forgiveness on her part. That is the way we are to God. It is not against God's laws that we have sinned. It is against his heart. And therefore, only an act of free forgiveness of the grace of God can put us back into the right relationship with him. The only way to right relationship with God is his gracious act of forgiving us. And how does he do that? He had to create the mechanism for that to happen. And so he sent his son to make a way for us to, in Christ, find that forgiveness. So let's recap. Saved by grace, not by works. We are saved by faith in our humble acceptance of his forgiveness freely given. And now we enter into Paul's paradox, the Pauline paradox. Saved not by works, for good works. Verse 10. For we are his, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now here we see Paul intentionally use creation language. The word translated workmanship means created, created or made. You might even say recreated, remade. And there's something that happens at salvation that changes our nature, the very fundamental nature of who we are. We are made new in Christ Jesus. And we see this throughout the New Testament, the teachings of the church. And Jesus called it, when he sat with Nicodemus and had this discussion, he called it being born again. And this is, this is no simple thing to kind of unpack because in that moment of being born again, we become temples or, or bearers of the Spirit and the presence of God. This is the life of uh, the Spirit breathed into us at salvation. We are adopted as children, and we've talked about that in, in the last few weeks, being adopted as children of our Creator. And this is kind of our identity piece. This is who we are. And we are made new in soul and spirit. John Stott writes, What constitutes the distinctiveness of the member of God's new society? Not just that they admire and even worship Jesus, not just that they assent to the dogmas of the church, not even that they live by certain moral standards. No, what makes them distinctive is their solidarity, their new solidarity as a people who are in Christ. 
At the very beginning of this series, I asked you to begin to kind of mark and keep track of how many times we see throughout Ephesians this idea of being in Christ, in Him, in God, in Christ Jesus. And one often overlooked part of this kind of recreation moment is the renewing, the renewing of our will. In our experience of forgiveness, we seek to engage relationship with God on, on His terms. And this involves changing the way that we live. This, this is where we are called to submit our will to His will. And there's a recreation of our will. And so this is where our will is recreated. Barclay once wrote, Greater than anything else, Jesus Christ revives and restores the lost will. We saw that the deadly thing about sin was that it slowly but surely destroyed a person's will and that the indulgence, which had begun as a pleasure, became a necessity. Jesus recreates the will. Your will partner with his will is an experience of grace that changes you, changes your behavior, changes your attitudes. But that's not the... That's not the reason. We don't change in order to earn salvation. We've already been saved. We change because he's recreated something in us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved not by works, for good works. And I love that Pastor Lisa uh, introduced us to Isaiah 45 verse 8 last week. It says, shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Salvation and righteousness springing up, sprouting up together. And this is really, in a summary, the Pauline paradox coming together in this kind of harmonized tension. Your salvation is by grace alone and not by works. But your experience of that grace and that love from God, along with the recreated being that he has created you to be, is the catalyst for good works in this world. And these good works are twofold. They're an inner work and they're an outer work. They're both. The inner work it may be the most challenging, but also the most fulfilling of the two. And this is the inner work of the reshaping of your attitudes, the constant washing, repenting, changing, not for salvation, but rather so that you can be useful as a vessel for God for the outer works. And this is the pursuit. This is the Christian faith. This past week, I, I had this chance to sit down with an individual that I'm just getting to know. And we uh, had this great kind of talk at length about concepts that stem from Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. And he says this to Timothy, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And what's so interesting about the, the context of this, this is not in the context of any kind of salvific or, 
or salvation theology. This moment that Paul is speaking to is he's speaking of the saved being useful for good works. This is, this is righteousness, not for the sake of salvation. This is for the greater stewardship of the callings and the purposes God has called you to. And I'm going to make a bit of a harsh statement here, but I think, I think in some ways it's true. In the West, we in the church in the West have been happy to experience the grace that leads to salvation. But there's a disconnect for us between the grace that leads to salvation and the grace that leads us into the inner and the outer works we've been called to. To the radical change that comes from partnering with our recreated will, with his will, to be cleaned and purified for good works. Friends, I, I, I had to preach this moment in the mirror before I could preach it to you. And I think we all do. We all understand that we are not perfect. We all understand we have areas of our soul that need to be scrubbed and cleaned and repented of. And the, the light of the, the truth needs to penetrate areas of our lives. But it's the grace that's been given to you, not just for your salvation, but for those good works, both the inner and the outer for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Notice the incentive, the responsibility we have here. Not just to be saved, but to be prepared for good works God has predetermined us to walk in. A few weeks ago, we learned that God predetermined us for salvation. But that salvation is not just for us. He's predetermined for us to walk in this inner and outer good works that we might reveal Jesus to others as well. And this begs the question, are we preparing ourselves for that purpose for which we've been called? Are we preparing ourselves? Are we making room in the temple of our lives? Jesus had a moment when he visited Jerusalem and many of you will know the story. He went and he visited the temple and in the outer courts of the temple, he saw tables where money changers were exchanging uh, currency at an inflationary rate. He saw greed in those moments. He saw uh, the sale of sacrificial animals at a elevated um, amount of money, uh, causing there to be barriers between people and the worship and the sacrifices they need to bring. And in that moment, he gets so angry and he fashions a whip together of cords and he whips people, flips tables, and runs them all out of the outer courts of the temple. New Testament biblical worldview says that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. So my question is, are we flipping over the tables of greed? in our lives? Are we confronting the lust of our eyes? Are we identifying the pride that leaves little room for him? Do we grieve those places that stand between us and the worship of the one who has saved us? Are we saved for heaven? Or are we those saved for purposes also in the here and now. 
the salvation and righteousness springing up together in our lives. Saved not by works, for good works. Now today, my hope is to create a moment perhaps of tension within this paradox, a moment of reflection, a moment of considering our own lives. For those of you in Christ, you need to know that your salvation is assured. The inner sanctuary of the temple, the holy of holies, if you will, of your heart is the place of his dwelling. You are saved, but there's a tension that we have to manage. Is salvation and righteousness springing up together in our lives? Or are there places in the temple of our hearts, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our worldviews, in our perspectives that need to come in alignment with the very will of God? A greater kind of filter to help us determine this is our capacity for the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are these fruits increasing in our lives? It's this inner work that prepares us for those outer works that God has predetermined for us to walk in. But I also want to talk to those that perhaps you're exploring faith with us today. And you're kind of asking the question, okay, what, what comes first in this Pauline paradox? Saved by grace for good works. What, how do we navigate this? And, and I think that you just need to hear this. God loves you right now, today, just the way you are. Sometimes our preconditioned idea of church and faith is that I have to somehow get to a certain level of holiness before I'll be accepted by God. But here's the deal. Salvation is by grace alone. There's nothing you can do other than in faith, accept that Jesus Christ was sent to save you and to change you and to renew your soul, spirit, body, mind, and yes, even your will. Salvation is a gift of grace. The pursuit of righteousness is our response to that gift. Save not by works, for good works. So Lord, in this moment, Lord, I don't know who's watching, but Holy Spirit, you do. And you're here. We acknowledge your presence in this moment for both the, the believer and those exploring faith. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you bring revelation of truth to our hearts and to our minds. Lord God, as those who are believers, I pray in Jesus' name that Holy Spirit, you would help us to thank you with worship and gratitude for the salvation, this great salvation you've led us in. We recognize that it was not by our own merit, but simply grace extended to us in love through Christ Jesus. But Lord, we also recognize that you've called us to righteous living as, as, a, as a response to that great love that you have extended. Lord, would you help us to reimagine the, the life that we can live as we come into alignment with your will, as Lord, your grace sees us through this, this cleansing of our temple, this, this, this changing of behavior, this changing of attitude uh, by your grace, by your strength is our act of worship. Lord, not just for ourselves, but for those outer works, for those 
those things that, those purposes you predetermined for us to walk in. Lord, would you lead us in them, in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for those exploring faith. Lord, I pray, and even in this moment, you give them a revelation of Jesus as Savior. And that, Lord, you give them the faith to believe, faith to be convinced of that truth. And Lord, as they say yes to Jesus, I pray that you would change their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus forever. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that uh, this moment in Paul's paradox has brought some clarity, uh, maybe some much needed tension within our uh, journey of faith. And I pray that God would give you wisdom as we take steps forward. God bless everyone. 